Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. When Jesus had breathed his last, we're told in the Gospel of John that two men emerged from anonymity, camouflaged in the crowd, to take his body and care for it, to anoint it, to wrap it, and to bury it. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They were the ones who would pry his hands and wrench his feet away from the splintered wood of the cross. We read about his burial in John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who at first had come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now, there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The most compelling, intriguing, curious part of the burial of Jesus, especially as it comes from John, are these words that are used to describe Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple, though a secret one, and Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus first by night, which is another way of saying in the secret. It's interesting to me because John tells the burial story of Jesus in such a way that makes us feel the hurry of the afternoon. He dies at three o'clock. They have to have him buried by six o'clock, otherwise they're violating Sabbath law. So John tells it without many details at all. The other gospels tell us all kinds of flourishing details about a stone 
large and round, about a rock-hewn grave borrowed from Joseph himself. We hear all kinds of details in the other Gospels. In the other Gospels, Pilate has a conversation with Joseph and with his, his centurion, with his guard, all kinds of dialogue. I didn't know he'd be dead by now. Is he already gone? Wow, that was fast. That's a paraphrase, by the way. But you, in the other Gospels, there is much detail around the burial. In this version in John's gospel, there are 113 words. But out of the 113 words that I just read before you, 23 of them describe Joseph and Nicodemus. I mean, nothing about the detailed conversation with Pilate, nothing about the rock-hewn grave. But out of 113 words, 23 of them spent on Joseph and Nicodemus. And so if you're in a hurry to report the obituary, why spend that much time describing the pallbearers? Because John wants us to pick up something that he's putting down. He wants us to understand the nature of the secrecy of their discipleship. And it causes me to wonder this evening, what, what is Secret discipleship. Can that happen? I mean, is that possible? I'm not saying is it permissible or is it plausible or is it allowed? I'm saying is it even like literally possible to be a follower of Jesus in secret? Because didn't Jesus say some things about what it costs to follow him. Didn't he say things like, hey, if anybody, anyone wants to be my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Secret? Discipleship? Didn't he also say some hard things to process or digest when he said, if you confess me before people, I will confess you before my father who is in heaven. But if you deny me before people, I will deny you before my father in heaven. That is a difficult saying of Jesus to process. And at the very least, it calls into question the nature of secret discipleship. And, and I kind of get it. I kind of get why Joseph and Nicodemus would keep their following of Jesus in secret. These were men of incredible influence and power and esteem. They had religious authority and political clout. I mean, Joseph and Nicodemus were both standing members of the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Judaism. It was a subcommittee, by the way, of the Sanhedrin that devised the plot to trap Jesus. And they were members of this esteemed body. We're told that Joseph was a wealthy man. In other gospels, we're told that he was a man of affluence and power and connectedness. He was connected to the power systems around him. He had political clout. I mean, he, in, the, in the passage we just read a moment ago, all he does is go to Pilate and ask for the body, and without even thinking about it, Pilate, according to this version, says, uh, sure, no discussion, no debate. You don't rise to that level of political clout without having made some connections along the way and without having something to lose if you are identified with this man. 
Nicodemus is the same way, a, a sitting member of the Sanhedrin, which is why he had to come to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness because if you demonstrate an interest in shaping your life after this radical who is causing such a stir, well then, you can be next. And I've just been thinking through this week, and especially today, the reason they were secret disciples is the same reason you and I are. Because we go through seasons, if we're honest, if we're truthful, there are seasons in the journey of our lives when we, we allow our faith to slip into the shadows of secrecy because we recognize that to live like him will cost us something. Everyone Jesus ever called to follow him, he first had them leave something. Let something go, Matthew. Leave the tax collection booth and follow me. Peter, James, John, leave your fishing nets and follow me. Everybody that Jesus ever called then and now to follow him, he first asks them to let something go. Do you know what it's like to feel compelled to mute your faith? Do you know what it's like to feel as if, if I stand for truth, if I speak truth to power, if I stand for justice, if I do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with my God in the way that Jesus did, it is going to cost me something. It'll cost me clout. It'll cost me perhaps everything I've been working for. It'll cost my reputation because I, if I identify with him, I will at some level be crucified some way. I get why they might be secret disciples because that's why you and I are from season to season. Because we are too afraid to lose what we have. But what's curious to me is that somewhere along the way, something changed for both of these men. What was it? What could have possibly called them to put everything on the table? Because on that day, the day of crucifixion, the Good Friday, they stepped out of the shadows and into the light publicly to take responsibility for the body of Jesus. I mean, what? Some people have said maybe, maybe it's because they saw something that day. You know, they'd seen crucifixions before, but this was different. Maybe they saw in the crowd, camouflaged among them, the 12 who had scattered and abandoned Jesus. Maybe he saw that, Joseph and Nicodemus. And maybe in, in concert with seeing that, they see the women who never left his side, who stood there with him and by him the whole while, weeping by what they have seen at the feet of Jesus. Maybe they saw that, and some have said, were overcome by a wave of emotions that caused them to step out. Okay, maybe, but maybe it wasn't something that they saw. Maybe it was something that they heard. Maybe, you know, we're told that Jesus said at least seven things from the cross while dying. What if they, what if they heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or what if they, what if they heard him when he turned to the criminal on the cross and said to him, today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. 
What if they heard him say that cry of dereliction? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe they heard him say, I thirst, or it is finished. Or maybe they heard him say, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Maybe. Maybe it's something they saw. Maybe it's something they heard. But I, I believe it might be something else. What if... What compelled them to step out of the shadows was this. What if what they saw that day was themselves? I've said through this entire series that you and I are called to fix our gaze upon Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, not despising its shame. And Paul says, when we do fix our eyes upon Christ, something transformational happens. Because if we fix our eyes upon Christ, we see everything that is in him that is pure and lovely and right and righteous and holy and good. We see upon the cross all of the mercy and forgiveness and grace that was poured out of his life for your life and mine. And we see all of those things, but at the same time, when we see all that put him on the cross, we cannot see that without the same time seeing ourselves and seeing reflected from the cross the absence of all of that which is holy, perfect, and good in him. And the longer we gaze at him, the more we recognize the absence of those things and it begins to cause us to despise the absence of those things in us. And gradually, as we keep our eyes fixed on him, we begin to take on the very characteristics of Christ himself and we become the body of Christ in this world. Paul says that when this happens, when you fix your eyes upon him and he fixes his holy gaze upon you, Degree by degree, bit by bit, day by day, something happens to the extent that when he looks at you, by the end of your life, he sees you, as 2 Corinthians chapter 3 reminds us, as if looking into a mirror himself. The cross of Christ has the capacity to inform and transform everything about you and me. And I don't know what Joseph and Nicodemus saw when they looked at the mirroring cross before them. But something changed that day for them. I don't, I don't know, maybe, 
As they look at everything that he poured out on that cross, they took inventory over everything that was in them that needed to be poured out. Maybe as they watched his life slowly ebb away from him, what if they were in the crowd when one day he said, I am the bread of life. And they recognized in this one, there is a kind of soul satisfaction, a kind of hunger that can be satisfied by nobody else because if he is bread, then I am fed. Maybe that's what it is that they discovered when they looked at the cross and remembered maybe they were with him when he said, I am the light of the world. And maybe they recognized in all of their pursuits of education and theological training and, and depth and diversity in their growth in faith, maybe they recognized that it wasn't until they met him that they had the light for true sight in this world. In all of their pursuits toward illumination, maybe they discovered for the first time that it is he, the light of the world, that can give them the capacity to see the kingdom as it is coming to earth. Maybe they were with him when they heard him say, I am the door. And maybe something triggered in them when they heard, I am the door, because they, as professional and qualified and equipped and, and, and professional as they are, maybe they have walked through a dozen doors in this life attempting to find access to something that would give them a life of meaning. But they realize on that day that there really is only one door to give access to the very heart of the Father. Yeah. Maybe they, they were with him when they they were with them maybe when he, he spoke the words, I am the good shepherd. And they recognized when they heard him say, I am the good shepherd, they recognized what you and I know to be true about the zip codes in which you and I live. That it's possible to project an image of perfection and confidence and security and got it togetherness while at the same time being lost inside like a lamb. Maybe they were with him. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me. And maybe they discovered through every moment and miracle and healing and, and teaching through him that the Jesus way is the truth about life. And maybe they were with him when they heard him say, I am the true vine. And what they knew about vine imagery in their religion was that maybe now after meeting him, they recognized no religion, no organized system of belief, no institution can bring the kind of fruitfulness that the true vine, Jesus, the vine of God can bring. I don't know what they saw when they looked in the mirror and I don't know what went through their minds, but I imagine that as they see him pouring out his life for them, but their confession must have been, if he is crucified and everything that he is informs and transforms everything that I am, and if he is crucified, well then I am crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live according to the son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Beloved, tonight as we consider the cross of Christ, we cannot make our way to resurrection until we recognize there is something in all of us that must die first 
before his life can come alive within us. What is it in you tonight that must die? Nicodemus can speak for himself. Joseph can speak for himself. But when you look at the cross-shaped mirror of God, what is he telling you tonight that must be given up and crucified in order to rise?